I'm Pastor Steve, one of three pastors here at Piney Ridge Church. It's my privilege to bring God's Word to you this morning. We have a lot of ground to cover, so I encourage you to open your Bibles, open your minds, open your hearts, and please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture passage is Hebrews 7, 1 to 10, but you might want to stick a marker in Genesis 14 as well. But I'm going to read from Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, I need you this morning to be strong in my weakness. Lord, I, I can do nothing to change people's hearts. I cannot save. I cannot sanctify. Only you can do that. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to work in all of our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Well, in the most recent James Bond movie, Bond's enemy has developed a biotechnology, a virus that he sprays on people and they contract it through their skin. But it remains inactive as long as they stay away from somebody who has been injected with a certain type of bot. They inject the bots into one person's body, and then anybody who comes near to that bot-infested person dies immediately. Now, spoiler alert. If you don't want to hear this, put your hands over your ears. In the climax of the movie, Bond discovers that the love of his life, wink, 
the love of his life, the woman he wants to spend the rest of his life with, wink, has been sprayed with this virus. And his enemy has injected the bots into his bloodstream. What that means is that this woman that he loves so much, if she draws near to him, she will die. And Bond, and not even Q for that matter, can come up to us with a solution for this dilemma. Well, this is a weak analogy for the dilemma that we as human beings faced. We were created with a desire to be in a loving, obedient relationship with God. We've been hardwired to want to draw near to Him. After all, He is the one in whose presence is the fullness of joy and at whose right hand is pleasure forevermore. We want to be near Him, but through Adam we all rebelled against Him. And through Adam, we were all infected with the virus of sin. And when we are in that state, if we draw near to, the, to God, although he loves us, he will also kill us because of his wrath for sin and his wrath for sinners. For as it says in Deuteronomy 4.24, quoted later in Hebrews, The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And in Isaiah 33, 19, the prophet says, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? God loves the people that he has created, yet because of their sin, the instant that they draw near to him, they're incinerated on the spot. Do you see the dilemma? It's a dilemma that we all face. We need an intermediary. We need a mediator between us and God. And praise God, he is wiser than James Bond and wiser than Q. Because he has given to his people the priesthood. You might remember when we preached through Exodus that God repeatedly said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. But there had to be certain conditions, didn't there? Remember that God had Moses, gave Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle. And in the most holy place would be where the manifest presence of the glory of God would be. And when they camped around the tabernacle, he put a barrier of priests around the tabernacle, lest any of them should wander in too close and die. And he created the Mosaic law with all of the, with the priests and with the offerings and the sacrifices. And he ordained the tribe of Levi to serve as priests. And the people would bring their offerings and their sacrifices to him, and they would then turn and offer those to God on their behalf. 
And out of the tribe of Levi, he chose Aaron, Moses' brother, to be the first high priest, and his sons to serve as high priests after him, and so on through all of his descendants. And each year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go behind the curtain in the most holy place, and he would sprinkle blood to, to atone for his sin and for the sins of Israel. And in that way, the high priest mediated and interceded with God on behalf of the people. But all of this was just a shadow of the reality to come. All of the ordinances about sacrifices and offerings and priests and the tabernacle were intended, they were temporary. And they were intended to point to their spiritual reality. They were, they were intended to point to the permanent reality that was to come, and that is the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was the better sacrifice that could take away their sins. He was the better sacrifice that could cleanse their consciences. He was the better high priest who wouldn't die like Aaron and all of his descendants did, thus ending their priesthood. His priesthood will last forever. And in the middle section of Hebrews, the author is persuading the Jewish Christians in his audience to hold fast by faith to their superior Savior, to not turn back to their old traditions, and don't yearn for the priests and the sacrifices that they could see with their physical eyes, but to turn from those dead works and cast their spiritual eyes, the eyes of their hearts, on Jesus Christ. And in today's passage, the author picks up where he left off in the middle of chapter 5 when he said this in verses 9 and 10. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And at that point, the author said, I have much more I need to say to you about this Melchizedek, but you have become dull of hearing. And then he goes on and rebukes them for their hardness of heart and their immaturity. And then he warns them against falling away, and then he encourages them and assures them he them assures them that he is convinced of much better things for them, things pertaining to salvation. And in last week's passage, he began to circle back, and he left off at the end of chapter 6 with this passage. Chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in today's passage, he's going to show that Melchizedek and his priesthood resemble and typify Christ and his priesthood. And then he argues, based on the evidence in the Old Testament, that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and greater than Levi. And since he was greater than Levi, he was greater than Levi's descendants. 
Aaron, and Moses. The Melchizedek order of priests must therefore be superior to the Levitical order of priests, including those high priests that descended from Aaron. And my prayer for you this morning is that you will gain an appreciation for the magnificence of the God's plan of redemption that is shown in the shadows of the Old Testament, but shown more fully and in all its splendor in the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will behold the glory of Jesus, your high priest, and in so doing that you will be transformed more and more into his image. And I pray that as you listen today and in the coming weeks, that those of you who already profess faith in Jesus Christ will grow in your assurance of faith as you grow in your confidence in your high priest. And for those of you who do not yet profess Jesus Christ as your Savior, I pray that the eyes of your hearts will be opened to behold the magnificence of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Now, we need to get some context for today's passage by looking in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, Abraham has, has moved to Canaan, and he's living there, and some kings from the east come in, and they sweep through the land, and they conquer five cities, and they plunder the cities, and they take the inhabitants captive. But one of the people they take captive is Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his family. You don't mess around with Abe. Abraham goes to his servants, and he raises a small army, and they go chasing after this huge army, and they defeat them. Hebrews 7 says they slaughter them, and they drive them out of the region, and they, re, they take back the captives, and they take the spoils that they have plundered. And now Abraham is returning back toward his home, and he has a brief encounter with a mysterious figure that just seemingly shows up out of nowhere, does his thing, and then he's not heard from again. Let's look at Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then that's all that's mentioned about Melchizedek in the historical writings about Israel. And, and if all we were interested in was the history of Israel, we would probably not give Melchizedek a second thought. But God won't let us do that. And he inspired through his Holy Spirit, David, who was giving a prophetic utterance about the Messiah in Psalm 110. And in verse 4 of Psalm 110, David is speaking about Yahweh talking to his son. And Yahweh says, the Lord, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, hmm. So Melchizedek must be more important than maybe we thought at first. Now he's linked 
to the Messiah. And so then the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he fleshes this out for us more in the middle of this argument as he is telling us that Jesus is the ultimate high priest. In fact, the author of Hebrews, although there were only three verses about Melchizedek in Genesis, he devotes 25 verses to Melchizedek. So that begs two questions. Who in the world is Melchizedek? And why is he so important? Well, who is Melchizedek? There's been much speculation through the centuries about who Melchizedek is. The Jewish theologians wrote about him for centuries before Jesus was born. And there has been much written about him since the birth of Jesus. I want to lay one theory to rest. Some claim that he was an Old Testament manifestation of God the Son. But I feel like verse 3 in Hebrews 7 refutes that because it says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Well, if I went to John Whittington and I said, you know, you look like a guy I know named John Whittington. He would look at me like I was nuts. Like I am John Whittington. What do you mean I resemble him? You know what resembles somebody that you are. Others have claimed that Melchizedek was some kind of angelic being or some other kind of heavenly being. I'm not going to speculate about any of that. We're going to stick with what the Bible tells us. And that's not the important thing in this passage anyway. But let's see what the author of Hebrews tells us about Melchizedek and how he resembles the Son of God. That's what's important. So how does Melchizedek resemble? How does he typify? How does he point us forward and fix our vision on Jesus? Well, there are five ways listed in verses 1 to 3. First of all, his name is the combination of two Hebrew words, one meaning king and the other meaning righteousness. And so the author of Hebrews says, well, his name is king of righteousness. Who does that remind us of? What did the author of Hebrews say in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9? He said that the, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Jesus' kingdom and that he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Jesus Christ is the king of righteousness, and Melchizedek points us to him. Secondly, Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Some people think that was ancient Jerusalem, but others don't, and it doesn't matter. What matters is the name of the city he was king of, Salem, which was the Hebrew word Shalom, which means peace. So by being the king of Salem, Melchizedek was literally the king of peace. Who does that remind us of? Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. A messianic prophecy, and he says, His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince. Of peace. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king of peace. 
A third way that Melchizedek points us to Christ is that Genesis comes right out and tells us that he was priest of God Most High. Well, who does that remind us of, Paul? In 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says there's only one mediator or priest between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the priest of God Most High. Fourth, the author of Hebrews doesn't come right out and say this, but Melchizedek was not a Levitical priest. He talks a lot about his genealogy. Genealogies were really important to the priests in, in old Israel. In fact, you, you had to prove that you were a descendant of Levi in order to serve as a priest. You might remember that when the captives came back from Babylon in Nehemiah 7, some of the priests came back and they kicked them out of the temple because they couldn't prove their genealogy that they had descended from Levi. And obviously, Melchizedek was not a descendant of Levi because he, he's here 100 years before Levi was born, right? So Melchizedek is a priest not by virtue of descending from Levi. He has another order of priesthood, as Psalm 110.4 says, the order of Melchizedek. Well, who does that remind us of? Jesus wasn't a descendant of Levi either. And Jason's going to flesh this out for us more fully next week. That Jesus descended from Judah. Therefore, he couldn't have been a priest according to the Mosaic law. But he is a priest of another order. Fifthly, Melchizedek points us to Jesus Christ because of his eternal priesthood. The author of Hebrews takes... The silence of Genesis. Genesis doesn't say anything about Melchizedek's genealogy. He doesn't tell us when he was born or when he died. And the author of Hebrews takes that silence and he says, what about him? He says, without father and mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Not that necessarily Melchizedek just appeared on the earth like he did in the Bible and disappeared. But more, the author of Hebrews is concerned with his priesthood. There's no record that he died like there is for all of the high priests throughout Israel. Their priesthood ended when they died. There's no record of Melchizedek dying. Therefore, he remains a priest forever, according to the author of Hebrews. Who does that remind us of? Well, Jesus says of himself in Revelation 1, 17 and 18, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And we are headed toward, in two weeks, when Pastor Nathan preaches in Hebrews 7, verses 24 and 25, to these verses. Listen to what the author says about Jesus. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, meaning, or it could mean completely, save completely at all times those who draw near to God through him. Those who draw near to God 
through him. Put that in the back of your mind. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. The significance of Melchizedek isn't who he was necessarily. The significance of Melchizedek Melchizedek is that he points us to Jesus Christ. He resembles Jesus Christ, and he takes our vision off of him and directs it to the King of Righteousness, the King of Peace, the Eternal High Priest. But that's not to say that Melchizedek wasn't great. The author of Hebrews now goes in verses 4 to 10 just to tell us how great he was. He's going to show us that in his name and his positions and his eternality that he resembles Christ, and now he's going to compare him to Abraham and Levi in order to establish that the Melchizedek priesthood is greater than the priesthood of Levi prescribed in the Mosaic law. So look at verse 4. The author claims that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham because Abraham, who was the forefather of all Jews, who was highly esteemed by all the Jews, paid a tribute to him. He paid a tithe to him, one-tenth of all the spoils from the war. And he goes on in verse 5 to explain that the priests, the descendants of Levi, also collect tithes from the people of Israel, but not because they're greater than those people, because they're all descendants of Abraham. The Levites collected tithes because the law told them to. They were obeying the law, and the people obeyed the law by paying tithes to the Levites. However, Melchizedek collected a tithe from Abraham. There was no law yet, and he wasn't a descendant of Levi, as we already established. So why did Abraham pay a tithe to him except that the fact that Melchizedek was his superior? And Abraham was the inferior, as he says, and I believe it's verse 7 where he says that, no, that's with the blessing, sorry. He says that, that Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek because of the superiority of Melchizedek. And then in verses 6 and 7, he goes on to strengthen his argument by observing that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And that's where he says in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior. And these two actions, according to the logic of the author of Hebrews, the paying of tithe to Melchizedek and the blessing of Abraham by Melchizedek formed the basis of the author's argument that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Now, this is an important conclusion because it's instrumental in the next argument, which is that Melchizedek is superior to Levi. The reasoning goes like this. Levi was the grandson, great-grandson of, of uh, Abraham. And he was in Abraham's loins when Abraham paid the tithe. Therefore, in a sense, Levi was playing, paying a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, that may seem like a strange argument to us. 
in 21st century America, this individualistic culture that we have. But it's the same principle that Paul uses in Romans when he says that in Adam, all of us sin. We were all in Adam when he sinned. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When God cursed Adam, he cursed all of us. Because of Adam's sin, we were all infected with that sin and guilty of that sin. And we're thinking, well, that's not fair, except we really want that to be true because the same principle also applies to those of us who are in Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, Jesus earned for all of you all of the blessings of salvation. He earned you all of the blessings from his imputed righteousness all the way through to glorification. Same principle applies. So the major conclusion in this section is Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than Levi. And the conclusion then that we are to draw is this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood under Levi. Well, why does it matter? Well, for the audience in the first century, this author is convincing the Hebrews not to turn back to the old covenant. Don't turn back to those rituals, to those sacrifices, to those offerings. Don't turn back to that priesthood. Stay, hold fast, stand firm. Hold fast to the new covenant, the better covenant, and the better high priest. He may have been anticipating their objections. How can... Jesus be a priest if he's not descended from Levi. And so he goes through this to prove that. And there may still be some of them who are thinking like the Jewish religious leaders in John 8. Do you remember when they said to him, Are you saying that you're greater than Abraham? And what did Jesus eventually say to them? I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Okay? He wants to convince these Jewish Christians to hold fast to Jesus. But what about the applications for Piney Ridge Church? in the 21st century? Are we tempted to go back to the sacrifices and to the feast days and to all of those things in the Old Covenant? Well, strangely, there are people that are tempted to do that, aren't there? False teachers arise periodically that say, if you want to be a higher, higher level of Christian, you're going to begin to celebrate the feast days. We have whole denominations that do that. So you need to celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday or you're not saved. And we need to all get together for the 
Feast of Trumpets and Passover and, and, and all of these things and celebrate those because that's what they did in the Old Testament. Folks, that's Old Covenant. Don't listen to those false teachers. Be on guard against them. For the people in the first century, this was a real temptation because they were just coming out of Judaism. So what are some things that you might be tempted to turn back to? Maybe past practices, past religious practices. Maybe you came out of a church that didn't preach the gospel. We recently had some people who were baptized and joined our church. And then within a couple of months, they were gone. And they told us that they had decided to go back to their other church, a church that does not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that's where their family was, and that's where they were comfortable. The temptation is real. It may not be something religious. What's something that you were called out of, something that you have turned away from, but still draws you? But here, I think, is the major application of this passage for us. I'm thinking back to the Jewish leaders saying, are you greater than Abraham? Whenever we're tempted to sin, we're saying to Jesus, are you greater than this pleasure that I want to indulge in? You fill in the blank for your own heart. Evaluate your hearts. When you're tempted, you're making a judgment. Are you greater than this, Jesus? And when we do sin, what are we saying? No, you are not greater. Right? Church, we need to be on guard against our own hearts. That would that would elevate anything in our lives above Jesus Christ. The message of this passage is that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, greater than Levi, Aaron, but Jesus Christ, I can't put my hand far enough, is far greater than Melchizedek. And so, Piney Ridge Church, fix your eyes on Jesus, your high priest. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then Jesus Christ is your high priest. I hear people sometimes pridefully say, I don't need a priest. I can go straight to God to confess my sins. Oh, yeah? Why is it that the author of Hebrews tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence? Because we have a high priest interceding on our behalf, mediating the new covenant on our behalf, constantly atoning for our sin. So lift your hearts in grateful praise to Jesus Christ, your 
glorious and forever high priest who allows you to draw near to God without dying and continue to draw near to him in confidence and faith because of all that he has done. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? You were created to be in relationship with God, and yet you rebel because of your sin. But God had a solution, and God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to live the life that we are incapable of living. And then he died on the cross as a sacrifice for all of those who will put their faith in him, dying the death that we couldn't, that we deserved, so that he could give us the life that we don't deserve. And you can have that abundant eternal life by placing your faith in all that he's done for the forgiveness of your sin and for your salvation from the wrath of God. I plead with you, if you haven't done that, to do that today. And as we come for communion, I encourage you not to participate. I encourage you to stay and pray. Or you can come talk to me in the back. I'll be back there, and I would love to talk to any of you. Or put it on a connection card, and we'll email you, and we'll get together. But don't delay. Place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, and you've had that profession of faith affirmed in a church by baptism, I invite you in a minute to come for communion. Here at Piney Ridge Church, we exit our rows to the left. When we come down to the front, we get the elements of communion, and we return to our seats and we take it with our family or with friends or people around us, or you can take it by yourself. As you come this morning, as you partake of the bread that represents the body of Jesus that was broken for you, and you drink the juice that represents the blood that he spilled on your behalf, offer praise to him as your high priest. Offer praise, give thanks to him that he continues forever mediating this covenant on your behalf. For all of those of you who should, you may now come to the Lord's table.